All right, John, uh, important conversation. In today's episode, we had on two really, really excellent guests and two sponsors of the show. Uh, first up, we got Dr. Matthew Lee. At the time of the recording, Matt was the Director of Empirical Research at the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard. Still intimately connected, but Matt's also moving on to uh, take on a full professorship at Baylor University. So Matt's research explores topics like well-being and flourishing, organizational compassion, um, integration of social science humanities, variety of areas of expertise in Matt's domain. He's a lead editor of Measuring Well-Being, Interdisciplinary Perspectives, um, which was published this past year by Oxford University Press. He's just an all-around great guy um, and big supporter of the show. So great to chat with him. And then you're going to introduce us to David Johnson. Yeah, so our second guest today was Dr. David Johnson. He's Reader in Comparative and International Education at the University of Oxford, where he's also a Fellow of St. Anthony's College. And at the time of this recording, he was also the University of Oxford's junior proctor. Um, he currently directs a research project sponsored by the Templeton World Charity Foundation on education, purpose, and human flourishing in uncertain times. And he's done a lot of work, a lot of research worldwide on human flourishing in many nations, um, including Sudan, Nigeria, Rwanda, Bhutan, Sierra Leone, and various other nations too. And I mean, that connects with kind of the theme of this discussion that I found most fascinating of many, which is both David's and Matt's work worldwide on various global flourishing studies in David's various case studies and the work that Matt outlined that the Harvard, the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard are doing in collaboration with Baylor University on what's called the Global Flourishing Study. Love to talk about that. Nick, what did you really enjoy talking about today? Yeah, I agree. I mean, just thinking about how different cultures, different parts of the world might view flourishing and, and what that means and what that requires and those sorts of things was, was certainly the highlight for me. Um, but just talking to these two guys in general, like both brilliant, both lots of knowledge and just easy to talk to. So um, I think the listeners are really going to enjoy. Here it is, our conversation with Matt Lee and David Johnson. You have a very lovely, what I would describe as Oxford-like background. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's actually real. A lot of my colleagues fake it. But, um... <laughs> Authentic. I love it. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually doing a, a quite an intensive uh, work role. It's, uh, it's, it's an office that dates back to 1248, probably the oldest office in Oxford. Mm. And it's that of uh, University Proctor. So I've just got masses of casework. It's, you know, uh, uh, appeals on examinations, discipline, welfare. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then, of course, there's a ceremonial part of the, to the role, which is all the graduation ceremonies. I'm delighted to have capped Hillary Clinton the other day for an honorary doctorate. How cool. So it's uh, dressing up in fineries and robes and enjoying the best that... Uh, Oxford colleges can offer in terms of port and dining. So uh, it's only for a year, sadly, then I have to, uh, you know, uh, go back to uh, to my um, to obscurity, relative obscurity. <laughs> my, my college, and, uh, you know, deal with vexing questions like human flourishing. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> I was just going to ask if this current post is as Proctor has you more or less uh, flourishing. <laughs> well, I'm I'm flourishing in a different direction, which is is, is really good. <laughs> David, it's it's great to meet you. We've we've sort of been 
in the same orbit, but I don't think on on the same event before. So it's uh, it's great to connect and and Nick and John always great to reconnect and uh, happy to to talk about flourishing as always. Flourishing must include rest yes. and restor and restoration. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we often think of flourishing as like achieving and pushing forward. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, we we really do need to just pause and yeah. be be instead of do. So totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, <laughs> on, on on that on that note, let's. Pause for one second, and that seamlessly moves into our first question. So I think here we could start this discussion and this conversation. And the first question we'd love to ask each of you is the kind of, I suppose, the golden question in a way of human flourishing, or one of the two golden questions of human flourishing, the, the other one being how we can flourish. But the kind of the prior question to that is, how do each of you define human flourishing? So Matt, you were just talking then about rest being important for human flourishing building on from that how do you find human flourishing well you know the the ordinary use of the word would conjure up synonyms like grow thrive prosper and you know there's something about um activity that is important for us to grow and expand and and thrive but we also need rest and so it's important to think about bringing ourselves into balance and and then in you know larger harmony with the world. So a nice short definition that we use at the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard is complete well-being. We don't just desire happiness or a few of the domains of well-being, but we would like to do or be well in the domains of life that really matter. You know, these domains are ends in themselves. Um, not just means to other ends. So money doesn't buy happiness, and you know money is not um, uh, the the most important uh, aspect of a flourishing life. But we we do think about ends as including happiness and purpose, healthy relationships, virtue, and and many other things. So we can think about flourishing at the individual community, or even ecological level. So individuals can flourish, but if we flourish at the expense of the natural environment, that's you know short-term gain, long-term loss. So we need to think about flourishing over the life course and across generations. Um, you know, are we really flourishing if our own well-being comes at the expense of other people? Um, it doesn't seem quite right and raises the issue of how responsibility connects to flourishing. And this is where we start thinking about flourishing as something different than well-being. We can be psychologically well, even if um, you know, our footprint on the world is quite harmful. And so flourishing suggests more of a connection um, to others and to the natural environment. Um, and so flourishing and justice are not separate. Um, and that's, you know, that's really been uh, an area of fruitful conversation about how flourishing goes beyond well-being and maybe even connecting with the ultimate ends of life, getting into religion and spirituality. So we like to think of flourishing as multidimensional and intersystemic, involving multiple systems. It unfolds across the life course in ways that often require us to make trade-offs. So we desire to be or do well across these domains. But as any parent knows, if you're up in the middle of the night caring for an infant, 
your physical and perhaps even emotional well-being might suffer, but your sense of meaning and purpose and your ability to grow a deeper bond with your child might be enhanced. So at different points in our life, we might have to make trade-offs. As we get older, we experience uh, physical health issues with more frequency, sometimes co-occurring conditions, but we can still flourish despite um, not doing quite as well on one or more of the domains. Uh, so there's a lot more that I could say ab about this, but I would just end with a, a brief note that suffering and flourishing sometimes are seen as opposites, and sometimes there's the possibility of integration. And so flourishing includes suffering. And there's, um, I think, a lot of fruitful conversation about flourishing as wholeness amidst adversity. There's a wonderful book called Mathematics for Human Flourishing that makes that point. Flourishing is really about how do we respond well uh, in ways that bring greater wholeness to ourselves and to others, um, despite the difficult circumstances we find ourselves in. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that and offer space for David. Well, that's great, Matt. And there's multiple things we want to double click on there. Um, before we do that, I want to go over to David. But I, I also want to mention you brought up, I think, three different points there that kind of speak to what we mentioned earlier, which is uh, Paul Bloom's new book, The Sweet Spot. And I mentioned we're having Todd Cashin on the show quite soon. And of course, what are they both really uh, experts in in many ways is sort of the the, as Todd would say, the upside of the dark side, right? The, the role of unpleasantness, psychological range, living a whole life and its impact on well-being. I, I just want to highlight that point because I think it's mm -hmm. easy to misunderstand flourishing with the constant presence of pleasantness, right? And we're yes. actually finding more and more that that's actually quite harmful. It also calls to right. mind dopamine nation, uh, and right. Lemke's new book, and yeah, so uh, so I at least wanted to highlight that. But David, let's let's pop over to you. How how would you define human flourishing? Similar to to Matt and Harvard, any distinctions? No, I mean I you know I would uh, uh, I would absolutely agree, and I think Matt has said it so well, and there's so many uh, 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 things that he that he said that absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, touch touch me to the core. I think it's a, it's very very well put. Um, uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm no philosopher, but in a, a sort of philosophical sense, for me, I uh, sort of think of flourishing as a journey, uh, which is um, uh, which starts from where we are. So the question of being, uh, the kind of notion of becoming. Uh, and uh, finally, one of, of transforming. But in that, uh, uh, flourishing really is a sort of contentness with being, a contentness with who we are. Now, this is not in a sense a liberal way, in a liberal sense that you, you take everything that is thrown uh, at you, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a critical contentness, an ability to see the world in a way that we understand our collective lots whether it's poverty or hunger or famine or the kinds of adversities that um, you know uh, 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 we, uh, we we experience uh, uh, globally, and as I said, it's not a contentness in in terms of accepting the condition, but a contentness in understanding uh, where we are and why things are as they are, and then uh, and then a, a sort of soberness in becoming. So rather than lofty, unachievable, 
ideals, a real soberness in thinking about the pathways that are possible uh, out of uh, adversity or out of uh, uncertainty to move away from our lots and to become something else, but absolutely driven by a soberness uh, uh, and an objectivity uh, 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 in um, uh, all, all of that. Uh, and finally, I suppose, really, it is about a sort of facilitativeness or a collaborativeness in transforming. So ultimately, flourishing is about transforming, but that this transformation is not an individual uh, transformation. It's not an individual uh, sort of superhuman a goal to change the world on your own, but really to work with others in a collaborative way to facilitate the desires and wants of others uh, is very much an important part of flourishing. To stand back and watch other people thrive, to stand back and watch collectives move from one space to another space, to stand back and see poverty shrink and prosperity grow is a facilitative uh, a process. So that's how I would, in a sense, sum up flourishing as a kind of, uh, you know, journey with a number of uh, steps laid out, that being being, becoming and transforming. And in that, our particular roles as contentness, um, perhaps soberness and uh, collaborativeness in, uh, in, in, in transformation. It's incredibly interesting to me, and I think, again, worth highlighting, you both have raised, I think, a fair and legitimate criticism, maybe unintentionally, but nonetheless sort of a criticism of, mm. of a field that I think we are all fans of and think there is a mm. place for, and that is positive psychology. Mm. But positive psychology has really kind of blown up in popularity, I'd say, especially in the last five to 10 years. And what I hear is sort of the, the evolution as a consequence of the criticism of pause psych, which is it's not just about the individual. It's mm -hmm. not just about positive thinking. It's not mm -hmm. just about kind of accepting your lot and thinking better about it. Right. And it's, it's more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. And so while there's, well, there's a place for the field, obviously, and it's brought tremendous things. I, I love that we are already starting out looking at the idea of flourishing a bit more holistically than it is sometimes mm -hmm. represented. So, so thank you both for those really nuanced responses. Uh, John, you want to move us back, I think, over to, to Matt's comments about the different domains of flourishing. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's a thank you both for these fantastically lucid and eloquent answers. There's so much uh, we could ask you about here and so many things I, I do want to ask you about. Um, perhaps we could start with, Matt, you mentioned the domains of well-being, domains of flourishing mm -hmm. that, are, that are important. And this connects with, you know, well, at least one of those connects with the points that Nick was making about positivity in the connection, in the sense that there's the domain of happiness and life satisfaction mm -hmm. in the human flourishing programs model. And also perhaps some of the points that David was making about contentment, that relating perhaps to life satisfaction, but not being directly the same as that. So I think it'd be important to, to just clarify, to begin with, to, to get on these definitions of flourishing, what those domains are mm -hmm. of flourishing that the human flourishing program focus on. Yeah, thank you. And I, I would just say at the outset that there are a number of frameworks for conceptualizing and then measuring flourishing, and they all offer something of value. And so there's a lot of overlap, but there's some distinctiveness across these um, various frameworks. You know, the, the blue zones 
uh, framework with, you know, sort of pyramid of, you know, at the base is belonging and then you move up, to, you know, to, to other elements. And so, you know, that's a that's a popular one that's being adopted by some healthcare systems. Uh, but our framework at the Human Flourishing Program really derives from the early conceptual work of our program director, uh, Tyler Vanderweel, and then some of the subsequent empirical testing. And, and we find that, you know, people really do place importance on these domains, and it includes happiness and life satisfaction. So it would be nice to feel good and have positive affect and look back on your life and say it was, you know, a satisfying, you know, life. Um, but also mental and physical health. And that's where some of the um, psychological focus misses out on physical health. And, but, you know, people want their bodies to be vital and, you know, to, to feel energized and to feel healthy and to be free of impairment. And, you know, then meaning and purpose um, are really important. But, and those are off, have often been focused on, but what's been less focused on is character and virtue. And so are we becoming better people? And, you know, I, I've had so many conversations over the years about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and self-actualization. I keep pointing out that, you know, self-actualization is great, but self-transcendence is really what he was talking about at the end of his life. And so losing ourselves in the service of a noble cause that benefits others is um, really important to our growth as individuals. And there's a whole new, um, I guess, field emerging, interdisciplinary field called life improvement science. You know, there was the first conference this year about how do we become well so we can do well. And, you know, I really think that that's where, um, you know, Tyler's approach, you know, reading more philosophy um, and theology, thinking about character and virtue and bringing that into the framework was, was really so helpful. And then, of course, um, without close social relationships, nothing happens. And so that's another important thing. We are uh, fundamentally social beings, and we must relate. And, and so if you look at um, these domains, this is sort of a baseline. Almost everyone can agree. Yes, it would be better to have a satisfying social relationship than an unsatisfying one. It would be better to grow in goodness than to become you know, less good. And so when we think about um, something like religion or spirituality, which for many people would be an outcome, a domain of flourishing that they would want to cultivate, we can also note that religion and spirituality contribute to a sense of meaning and purpose. It contributes to a sense of character and virtue. So we sometimes think about pathways to flourishing, and each of these domains may be affected by our family experiences, our religious communities, our workplaces, our educational settings. Um, but, you know, spirituality can be um, an important outcome, an important domain of flourishing itself. So it's both a pathway and, and an outcome. And just as um, social relationships can help us achieve a greater sense of meaning and purpose, greater sense of happiness, et cetera. So a lot of these domains can also be pathways. And so we're really trying to understand the relationships among the domains and then which domains seem to cause the other ones? And so if we wanted to do an intervention, where might we focus? You know, where would we put our emphasis if we wanted the most return on investment, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much, Matt, for clarifying those domains. And David, some of those connect with some of the points you were mentioning that I'd love to focus on. So you really focused on this idea of flourishing 
not being so much a, a state we're in, but a journey towards somewhere we're going. And that connects with some of the points it seemed that Matt was saying then as well, that as you said, David, flourishing is a process of becoming. It's a journey, um, process of being, becoming, transforming. And toward, one of the mentions we're moving towards is contentment, which is perhaps connected with the sense of life satisfaction, one domain in the Harvard model. You mentioned contentment, soberness, and collaboration being key points where we're perhaps aiming. So maybe could you just clarify that a bit more, David. What the process? What's the journey kind of moving towards um, on this flourishing journey, which itself can be one of human flourishing, but perhaps then um, reaches a peak, which we could maybe use notions such as self-actualization from Maslow to help clarify what that might involve and so on. But how do you see this, this process of becoming towards something else? Mm. Fantastic, uh, John. In my opening remarks, I'm, I'm not a philosopher, perhaps I should say my second bite of the cherry. I'm, you know, I'm not great at, uh, I'm not a great uh, sort of semiotic uh, linguist, but I was, I was really looking at your your uh, your hands and uh, as, as you were trying to uh, illustrate your point. And um, uh, it kind of struck me that, you know, when we talk of flourishing and almost in the way that you were illustrating, we see, we see perhaps as growth and growth towards, but that growing towards as an upward trajectory. And so, you know, the shape that your, 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 your hands are taking and so on. And, and, and I can see that. And so many of these models, you know, psychological models take, you know, Kahlberg stages of moral development. There's uh, the idea that we grow towards, we become uh, more expansive in uh, our understanding uh, about life. And I, I, it's, it's just kind of struck me. I wonder whether it is actually, uh, you know, a contention between growth and death. And is it possible to see flourishing not as growing towards something upwards, but actually growing deeper so that you're not sort of moving from, you know, point A to point B on a journey that is an upward trajectory, but moving from point A to point B almost downwards, you know, a deeper. So, you know, you mentioned the term sort of religion. So, you know, can we become more deeply really can we become more deeply contented uh so you know so the idea that we're not necessarily uh shifting so in economic terms you know uh prosperity would be an outcome which uh which would probably mean that you know if you were looking at your bank balance uh, it was uh, X on one day and Y another day with Y being, you know, larger than X. So a sense of, of, of growth or, or health well-being that, you, you, you know, you actually get uh, visibly uh, uh, better. You, you, you kind of live better uh, and so on. There's nothing wrong with these ideas, but, you know, I also think a case could be made for flourishing as depth. And that, that that flourishing is about um, becoming more content with ourselves, a much deeper spiritual understanding of contentness, of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of, of who we are, the ability to reflect uh, deeply rather than a, a kind of physical, uh, a physical, a physical shift. Does that does that make uh, does that does it help? Uh, I, I would I would love to jump in on on that. Please, that's please. that's mm. really an important point, and I'm thinking you know back to what Nick was saying about some of the criticism of positive psychology. 
I don't know that individual positive psychologists were not interested or focused on suffering, but it seemed like the way positive psychology was being used by organizations that want more productivity out of workers or schools that want better Mm. grade point averages or something. It seemed like somewhere along the way, suffering got lost in the conversation. And and David, what you're suggesting reminds me of something that the psychologist Paul Wong said in a recent um, talk to our program, that in order for the tree to grow very tall, it has Mm. to sink the roots deep into Mm. the soil. So sinking the roots into the soil is touching Mm. suffering. And mm. so for, for Paul, you flourish more if you're actually awake and aware to suffering and you can work with that, you know, creatively. And so a lot of what he's been doing in his work is to help people. Uh, he talks about mature happiness, finding a balance, mm. you know, by by integrating suffering and responding to it creatively. So when we think about um, our own psychological well-being, mm we might have very unhealthy ways of coping with our suffering. And mm. then we say we're happy, you know, mm. we're using substances mm. to, um, to, you know, mm. to get, get a rush or something to get some escape from mm. our suffering. And that's not really flourishing, but, you know, we might report that we're relatively happy because we're living mm. in this kind of hedonistic mm. mode. But, you know, even going back to, to Maslow, he talks about, the merely healthy self-actualizers. And then he talks about the ones who are really doing transformative work, who had become, in his words, a good member of the human species. Mm -hmm. And these were folks who, again, in his words, may have experienced a kind of cosmic sadness. They Mm -hmm. look around at their level of awareness and they see a lot of problems that would be easily preventable. But many people are kind of caught up in a selfish kind of awareness. So Mm -hmm. flourishing is um, connected to our stage of development in terms of our awareness. Are we focused mostly on our own needs or the needs of the near and dear? Or are we able to see how we are connected with everyone and therefore their flourishing and well-being is is important directly to our flourishing and well-being? So that sense of interconnection um, I think is fostered by being able to connect with with our own suffering. Mm-hmm. And so if we're pushing suffering away and we're not sending the roots deep into the soil, then our um, how we will understand flourishing is going to be impoverished. Yeah. There's so much to connect here. There's so much wonderful, I think, synthesis to be had. Um, I first want to mention, Matt, you might not even remember this, but in a previous conversation you and I had, we talked about soil. And you very cleverly Mm -hmm. reminded me that the healthiest soil is usually filled with manure. (laughs) It's it's not all good. Some of it stinks. Uh, uh, Well, and and the other other great way to look at it, we have a community of practice uh, that we run through the program. And um, one of our members is from Japan, and she said, "You know, here's an here's a picture of a tray I prepared for a, a tea cer- a traditional tea ceremony, and you take the bitter taste before you take the sweet taste, mm. and then the sweet taste is all, all the sweeter because you've integrated the bitter. So, so life involves death and suffering and loss and grief and all of these." things but if we can if we get caught just in the bitter taste and we don't go through the whole ceremony you know we we might um we might not flourish but if we can find a way 
to, to bring all of these flavors together, we can live what she so beautifully called a delicious life. <laughs> and that's it. flourishing. The integration of, of the, um, I think what David was saying was really important. It's not just accepting to the point of being complacent. It's you accept life on life's terms, but then you can work creatively with it and even joyfully. And, and I've known people in the midst of great conflicts or, or trying to transform systemic injustices where there's a lot of, um, you know, stagnant, you can't make progress in the short run, but they continue to do it for decades and they don't lose hope. And, and you know, they've somehow figured out how do I accept that this is true, but there's something that I can do creatively with mm -hmm. it. And so you're not pushing it away. You're not trying to, to run from it. And so I think that some of the positive psychology has focused on how do people gain a broader perspective on their own lives, on their role within a larger narrative, a larger story, um, so that they can see their contribution to creating something like beloved community, something that um, really benefits everyone. But they know that they're suffering all along the way, and they're 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 able to accept that um, in the short run, they may not realize all of their goals. But as Martin Luther King put it, in the long run, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. <laughs> so it's it's interesting the way a lot of these topics are weaving together. And if we just sort of kind of take a, a tangent from the suffering piece just for a second and go back to, David, I like the way you put it, watching John's hands, these notions mm -hmm. of peak experiences, which are often associated with flourishing. Mm -hmm. So as you two are walking us through this, I, I leaned over to my other, other laptop and pulled up Transcend by Scott Barry Kaufman. I said, mm -hmm. okay, Maslow, according to Scott, right, he never actually had a hierarchy of needs. And that self-actualization is really about, as Scott argues, transcendence, right? And at the in the last chapter, he draws parallels to sort of this burgeoning field of neurotheology, right? Andrew Newberg. And I want to read a quote to you that I, I pulled up here that uh, Scott argues and, and this field, neurotheology <laughs> argues that peak experiences are actually defined as transcendent experiences, transient mental states marked by decreased self-salience, and increased feelings of connectedness, mm -hmm. right? It's really more about the we than the mm -hmm. me when we talk mm -hmm. about self-actualization and sort of those higher levels of, of maybe consciousness, you might argue. So I just wanted to bring all that together. There was so, so much really wonderful mm -hmm. synergy there. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree entirely. I, I think certainly, um, you know, um, uh, I'm a psychologist for better or for worse, and um, uh, in my early undergraduate uh, sort of studies, you know, on, on the, the usual uh, sort of diet of, of Freud and later uh, Piaget and the sense of, you know, a variety of positive psychologists who weren't called positive psychology, uh, uh, you know, at, uh, at, at the time. But um, I, I think there was really an important book that influenced me really quite a, a lot. So it's, a, it's an old text written by Viktor Frankl, and uh, it's called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's, you know, set in uh, uh, the, the, the context of, uh, uh, of, of sufferings amongst Jewish uh, 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 people in, in the, the, that sort of brutality and violence of, uh, 
of uh, of, of of persecution, um, and also because I I sort of had a, a more than just one political bone in my body, and I couldn't quite um, relate things like human suffering or the human condition or things that challenge us to individual challenges, but to uh, collective challenges. I started looking at completely. Uh, opposite frames of reference to understand human nature, human thinking, what drives us, what uh, allows us to be, and actually settled on some uh, texts by Russian philosophers and Russian scholars. And there was, for example, Vishiluk, who uh, spoke of um, experience. And it's, it's, it's wonderful in the way that that text is written that it actually evokes uh, invokes uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth and uh, says, you know, do you understand that your entire family has been wiped out? You know, what are you going to do about it, sort of physically, uh, in 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 activity? And he says, well, I, I understand that. Do you mean my 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 children as well? Yeah, absolutely, everyone in in, in the family. What are you going to um, to do about it? Uh, you know, you've got to do something. Uh, you, you've got to you've got to deal with this as man, and uh, the reply was yes, I, I, I will with this as 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 a man. But first, I have to experience it as a man. And when Vishaluk then wrote on emotion and the sense of of experience, uh, 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 that that was really for me uh, incredibly, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, striking. Uh, and it, I, I think you know what uh, I think where where, where Matt was uh, uh, going uh, on, on this point. It is about being able to appreciate uh, and experience uh, not only individual suffering but collective suffering. You know why is it that groups of people, whether they be of a particular a uh, racial group, a particular persecuted religious group, uh, etc., of which you might be part, and of course, of which you may not be part, but have an enormous empathy for uh, the collective uh, suffering uh, of others, away from one's own pain, uh, to being able to experience and empathize with the pain and suffering of others. And I think it's when that opens up that that, for me, becomes really an important part of, of flourishing, the depth of understanding, yeah. the ability for collective, for social empathy, uh, even where that empathy is very, very far away from, you know, where, where, where you live and, 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 and your own individual vision. It's interesting you bring up Frankel. This is actually a second conversation in a row in which Man's Search for Meeting has come up. Um, right. I, I have a feeling it's going to continue to come up in some of these conversations. <laughs> but, um, I want to I want to throw it over to John in just a minute to take us in a different direction. But uh, before we do that, I'd love to just sort of summarize these domains we're talking about and kind of concretize them for our listeners. So just sort of in review we're kind of recovering six different domains for human flourishing, right? Happiness and satisfaction. There's different types of happiness, right? There's hedonism or sort of just pleasure, positive, uh, positive emotion, if you will, pleasantness more generally, right? Eudaimonic well-being, sort of virtue, personal growth, meaning-based well-being, and then life satisfaction, which is a bit more kind of holistic, retrospective mm -hmm. in many cases, right? You've got mental and physical well-being, and Matt, you really hammered home the piece about the physical well-being. We're talking sleep, 
movement, uh, nutrition, hydration, just sort of the core things, right? Meaning and purpose, um, kind of this connection to larger communities, to the we, not just the me, right? And, and how can we positively impact that through our actions? Uh, social connection, I think, I think we mostly agree, like social connection, quality relationships, one of the single greatest predictors of, of happiness, globally speaking, okay? Character and virtue, something you said, Matt, is, is typically sort of um, underemphasized, but sort of being the, the quality of human being that we hope to be and growing in those ways, right? What we, we bring to the world. And then the last one, I don't know, we talked about too much, but I believe it's essentially material well-being or material stability and, and sort of core needs, correct? That, you know, money may not buy happiness, but it's it's a little harder to be there when we're in poverty, for instance, right? Like being able to secure core needs, food, water, shelter, healthcare, things of that nature. Does, does that just about sum it up? Well, the, the last, um, yes, um, there's also kind of, flourishing at the community level. So we could talk about that. But sure. the last point about financial material stability is an interesting one. Um, I think it is true that, you know, we, in order to survive, you know, we need shelter and food and, and things like that. So you do, you do need a certain level of, of material stability, you know, um, but that will vary quite a bit. And, and in fact, yeah. in a lot of our survey research around the world, we find that in countries where there's a lot of financial precarity and a lot and a lot of self-reported concern about financial material stability that there's very high um, levels of the other domains and in the United States where there's higher levels of financial material stability the average scores on these other domains are quite a bit lower mm. so it's i think it's an open question about the dose there yeah. Um, how yeah. much you know do you need? Because we know people take the vow of poverty and lead quite meaningful, fulfilling lives of great character and, and virtue. And and so you know what is it that we actually need? And I'm remember uh, remembering a, a, an article in the uh, magazine The Atlantic, written by one of our program affiliates, um, Arthur Brooks, where he talks about how quality of life has been going up for years and years, but our sense of being well or happiness has been going down. Right. So our objective conditions are improving, but our experience is perhaps um, declining. And he ends by saying, don't trade love for anything. And so if we're putting so much emphasis on the financial and material um, that we're de-emphasizing close social relationships or character and virtue, then we're we're probably aiming at the wrong target. So I would say that um, the other domains are ends in themselves. The financial material stability could be a means to an end, but we wouldn't want to turn that into an end. So if it enables us to do more good in the world, then it's um, then it facilitates flourishing. But if it becomes our focus and societally, it seems to be more of a focus in the United States than some of the other countries we've studied, and that is contributing to lower. Um, overall flourishing and lower scores on a number of domains, including ones that we wouldn't, you know, quite expect. Um, so there's a really rich conversation about the relationship between these ends 
and the various means that we use to. I'm really, really glad you brought that up. I think the, the language was perfect. The distinction between sort of means and ends and which one we're focusing on. And you, you mentioned the research sort of showing, you know, materialistic tendencies and points of focus actually on ill being. And, and it also reminds me of uh, civilized to death, Christopher Ryan. Right? He, he essentially argues that like hunter-gatherer tribes tend to be happier and, and that civilization is actually in some ways making us less happy despite these creature comforts. It, it made me chuckle when I heard about it the first time. He kind of said, you know, the, the most that they might work in a given week, these hunter-gatherer tribes is say 14 to 20 hours. And what are they doing? They're hunting, fishing and gardening the things we do for vacation and leisure. Right? <laughs> right. Well, so, and, and there's a sense in... Uh, for most of human history, we lived in small tribes and we all needed each other. Like if I didn't do my part, the the whole group might suffer. And so right. I need you and you need me. And now in these, you know, very large industrialized societies, it's not clear that I'm needed. Um, I might actually be superfluous. And that that sense that we don't really matter um, is is a source of uh, of great despair. So we we have a kind of um, you know, high standard of living that produces a lot of materialistic uh, forms of happiness, but we might feel, you know, somewhat disconnected or alienated inside. So that seems to be one of the, we don't have definitive data um, at this point, but that seems to be one plausible explanation for why we find flourishing so much higher in these um, settings that um, are just objectively uh, more financially distressed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. I think there the, are the a number of, of, of uh, pieces there that um, you know swirl swirl around a lot, and uh, they they you know they they sort of worth uh, investigating a bit further. So uh, you know from a cross cultural uh, perspective, you know which uh, and at a societal level, you know I, I think arguments could be made in terms of you know sort of Western social. Uh, democracies, uh, uh, you know, like uh, the Scandinavian countries, etc. The the idea is that uh, a a society takes the burden of prosperity. So it's not down to an individual to make money to achieve a particular end in itself. Look at my bank balance. The idea is that society blunts that by saying everyone should have enough as uh, uh, to fulfill their basic needs. But that is not an individual problem. It is a collective societal problem that is driven from the top. So social welfare becomes meaningful rather than, uh, you know, something that is despised uh, because it's understood, uh, 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 you know, as, um, as such. Uh, and of course, um, uh, you know, but not all societies have reached, in a sense, collectively that level of prosperity and wealth, so that that distribution is indeed, uh, uh, you know, is indeed possible. It then comes down to groups to accept uh, their lots, and that poverty becomes, uh, uh, in a sense, you know, part of the equation. So Bhutan, a country I'm very fond of, and have done. Uh, quite a bit of work there has got us, you know, in in objection to the, uh, you know, the uh, the, the economic uh, measure of of uh, yep. gross 
yeah. of GDP, you know, a, a sort of gross national uh, happiness, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in a sense, not, not suggesting that they have, in fact, been able to achieve it. And there's more to the concept than a sort of, you know, fluffy use of words. Um, but, it, you know, these things do um, sort of, I think, you know, I think um, need a lot of, of, uh, of probing, which I know is probably one of, of, uh, of the questions that uh, you, you, you will or intend to invite us to, to speak to about the sort of, you know, is flourishing uh, understood uh, the same across different cultural yeah. contexts? And if we're talking about material uh, well-being, uh, and if we're talking about, you know, means to or end uh, or outcomes uh, themselves, and this question becomes frightfully, frightfully important, uh, mm-hmm. uh, who drives uh, and whose responsibility, uh, you know, uh, uh, is it? Um, well, that's, yeah, that's precisely the question we'd actually like to ask you both now, in fact, because you, you've both uh, mentioned it, there, you've, you've both done extensive research on flourishing globally. And mm. the, the points you've made there bring up various interesting connections that we'd, we'd like to go further on. So, David, through your work on learning and education in relation to flourishing in many nations worldwide, particularly various African nations, and Matt, through your work on the new Global Flourishing Study, the largest worldwide initiative to date investigating the factors that influence flourishing. So you've mentioned some of this already. We'd like to go in deeper on this. Could you each tell us about your research on flourishing worldwide and some key observations you've made about the similarities and differences in the ways that people flourish across the nations and cultures where you've done empirical research. One you've just mentioned there, David uh, Bhutan. And one one question I'd be particularly interested to to hear your views on is the one David's mentioned there, whether the domains vary across cultures and nations, you know, actually a whole other domain perhaps of, of well-being, or whether the importance of some of those domains that we've discussed so far, such as happiness and life satisfaction, financial material stability, meaning and purpose, whether those vary in terms of the importance thing. So um, let's go to you first on this, Matt, and it'd be also great if you could say a little bit about the Global Flourishing Study, this new initiative that you're involved with. Sure, thank you. Um, so there's so much, that's another hour-long conversation <laughs> in and of itself. So I'll offer just a few remarks. The Global Flourishing Study is a joint venture between our program and the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University um, in collaboration with Gallup. And so Gallup um, has um, just abundant experience collecting data around the world and trying to figure out, you know, what do these survey items that we write in English mean in other uh, languages as they understood through other cultural lenses? And how do we... um, how is it possible to even compare these results? And so we've done um, some work up to this point with worker samples around the world, mostly factory workers around the world. And so what the Global Flourishing Study will allow us to do is to collect community-based samples. Um, Workers tend to um, do better than the general population. They're um, earning income and, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, they're healthy enough to go to work. And so they don't have some of the debilitating problems to the same degree as the, as the general community. So we want to understand um, not just workers, but um, at some point, are we going to be able to generalize to the human species if we mm. do this well? And so by collecting data from 22 different countries um, every year, a nationally representative sample in each of these 
countries and then following the same people for five years so we can see how things change within the same individuals. Um, we, we will have more ability um, to, to really understand what's going on. Now, there's more there are more ways to study people than survey research. So I'm, I'm not suggesting that this will give us the definitive answer to which countries are the most flourishing or something like that. Um, but it does help us to understand something about how people in different countries understand flourishing and then some of the variables that relate to flourishing. So what we've noticed, though, with our worker samples, um, you know, getting back to what I was alluding to earlier, that it might be that sense of meaning and purpose within warm social relationships is really, really important. And that explains some of the differences. Why do we find, um, I'll just take an example within the United States, the worst self-reported physical health is with medical students and medical residents of any of the samples that we've collected, which is you know kind of a sad irony because these are folks who are being trained to care for the health and well-being of patients and their physical, their emotional health is really quite low as well. But it's interesting to me that we have a project right now looking at um, uh, residents of uh, senior living centers. They've retired. The average age is over 80 years old. Most of them are dealing with multiple physical health problems. And yet self-reported physical health scores are so much higher than medical residents, for example. And so, you know, why is that? Well, I think there's um, a, a certain kind of load that the human body and the human emotions, the brain and uh, can, can withstand that is being pushed beyond the limits for medical students and medical residents. And this retired group, even though objectively they suffer from more physical health conditions, they feel like they're relatively physically healthy. And so when we look around the world at groups that have very high levels of self-reported flourishing across these domains of happiness and, and health and meaning and character and social relationships, um, but relatively low levels of financial and material stability, it seems like they're managing the human condition uh, better than many of us in the United States, where we're so focused on um, financial, the financial aspects of our lives that might be neglecting our growth as people or our ability to relate to others. And I wonder if the, the medical residents in this one published study hold some clues because um, half of them were exhausted. They reported being exhausted. And of course, if you're working late shifts and trying to learn all sorts of content and then being put in situations where you don't really know what you're doing, but you're responsible for someone's life, um, that's very stressful. And, and how much stress can we manage? And in what context do human beings uh, manage stress much better? And that's where, you know, I, I write a lot in psychology journals, but I'm actually a sociologist. And so I go back to the container. What kind of container, social container have we built what are the conditions of the soil that enable individuals to deal with their stressors through their uh, through relying on their warm social relationships? So we may have a lot of money and we may have gotten a big pay raise, but if we feel um, disconnected from other people and if we feel like we're not part of warm social relationships, then uh, the money is not really going to be all that 
beneficial if we if we are exhausted and we can't rely on a supportive nurturing container. Matt, so I think you, those those are the clues that we're picking up in this preliminary work. I don't want to do too, you know, draw too firm a conclusion from it, but I think the global flourishing study will help us really get a, a more representative understanding of what people are experiencing around the world. Matt, will you just clarify for the listeners? I think you're using warm social relationships very intentionally there. What you mean by warm as opposed to cold relationships? You know, I, I really like Martin Buber's distinction between what he calls I and it relationships, where you're treating the other person as a means to an end versus an I and you or I and thou. Sometimes the translation is different. But you know, I'm a fully realized human being and you're a fully realized human being and we're not using each other instrumentally. Um, I think that's that's where the warmth is experienced, where we have value, we have inherent dignity. We might say infinite value and the people we're relating to have infinite value. And so we're not going to just use them to foster our own agendas, but we're going to relate to them as though they were sacred as we are. So they're not objects, they're, they're people. And I think that that, um, that way of relating, you know, Buber makes distinction between experience and encounter. And experience is sort of, you know, you analyze it, sort of intellectual or whatever. You, you have these things that you're extracting uh, from the world to have these experiences. Whereas in an encounter, you know, time sort of stops and you start to participate in a real relationship. You start to really see um, the person in their fullness. And this is why many philosophers and even psychologists have said, you don't, the other person doesn't fully appear to you unless you love them. If you don't love them, you're missing out on important information about their mm. full being, their totality, their wholeness. And it's only through love that you can appreciate that. And that's where the warmth, I think, is, is evident. When people are engaged in warm relationships, there's a kind of relaxation that um, is often experienced. I mean, sometimes love is, you know, sucking in other things too. But, um, but oftentimes you have the sense that I'm safe and you're safe and we can relax into yeah. that safe space. We can, we can really see each other. And when, when that warmth is absent, the trust is absent. And so I'm suspicious and I'm not sure what your motives are and you don't know what I'm up to. And so, you know, I think that um, that's one of the lessons that we're going to see more clearly through the global flourishing study. We're getting glimpses of it already. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, same question to you, David. So in your, in your work worldwide in the various nations you've worked with, um, what do you see as being, you know, what are some of the, main um, similarities and, and differences you observed in the way people flourish across the nations and cultures where you've done empirical research? This is an enormously uh, a, a difficult question and uh, I'm, I'll, I'll try something. I've just kind of been scribbling as we've uh, speaking, but if you, if you actually draw, uh, you know, on a page, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a across really is the best way to explain it, a vertical line and horizontal line uh, that gives you sort of, uh, you know, four four quadrants and the, the vertical line, the the kind of um, Y axis uh, on the top is sort of, uh, you know, a construct such as meaning seeking and the bottom of that line being sort of um, 
prosperity seeking or you know uh, wealth seeking, well being seeking, and then the, the the horizontal line on 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 the left, you might have sort of uh, collective, and on the right uh, individual. So in these four quadrants. You know, can we can we just as a as a very rough and unscientific exercise um, uh, sort of profile um, uh, you know almost cultures and, and and nations without, as I said, it's not a, a kind of scientific uh, finding. But uh, you know, if you looked at the um, the quadrant on the sort of top far right as um, you know meaning seeking and uh, an individual the question you know perhaps is uh, you know who am i uh, you know uh, how do i stand how, how do i understand myself as an individual uh, you know, uh, and that becomes a a big driver for uh, how people perceive uh, flourishing and what they uh, in a sense, I'm inclined to 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 sort of you know uh, do um, about it. So you you, you know there, there there are similarities, but also deep differences uh, between say the UK and the US, who might mm-hmm. both be in that sort of quadrant. Uh, you know similarities and differences very interesting. So uh, you know I'm on a committee in Oxford that uh, is looking to appoint a new vice chancellor. We look at what we pay our vice chancellors, and our recruiting teams are looking at stealing Harvard's president away from himself, or some, you know, uh, uh, an Australian uh, sort of uh, leader of a of of a university. And the big question for this committee is: Will these people come for what we're able to pay them? And the answer to that is absolutely not. You know, uh, and uh, we 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 ask questions about you know retention and recruitment for academic. Uh, staff and people who we approach from the US look at what we offer in salaries and laugh, laugh, laugh us out of court. You know, say, what? Is that what you're you're offering? So the question, you know, why why would you work in Oxford? Uh, uh, You know, why would you work in a university in the UK? It's clearly not for the money. So certainly for for academics, uh, both in the US and the UK, there, there are huge differences in what they might consider to be, uh, you know, uh, if you want to look at your sort of uh, trajectory in the way that it might be upwards, saying, well, my bank balance is going nowhere if I move to the UK, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, the, the alternative question is, you know, how satisfying would a job at Oxford as opposed to Harvard uh, be and would that be a reason why I would drag my family across the uh, Atlantic to settle in a different country? But so this this quadrant of you know um, uh, is 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 interesting in that meaning seeking could be a very individualistic meaning seeking. There's nothing wrong with that, and I, and I'm not saying that. Uh, people are labelled by that, that any individual has that label attributed to their entire being. But it is an interesting, when when one speaks to people and tries to understand what drives them, then this is um, this is quite evident uh, in, uh, in some countries. They come down clockwise to the sort of, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, wealth, 
seeking, wealth driving uh, in, in individual, uh, you know, whatever. But if you look at look at that at the national level, you know, what what do we do in a society to make the society prosperous? If one looks at South Korea, it basically went from educational attainment. Uh, uh, of of pretty low level, so basically school completion, right? Uh, what what levels of schooling do people complete? What levels of university? To an absolutely phenomenal uh, educational attainment that a vast number of its population are now university educated, etc. Along with that has come enormous growth and prosperity. In wealth, so if you look at an international, you know, sort of financial uh, table of uh, table of wealth, and South Korea is well up there, leading a lot of economists to say, well, this is exactly what you do to drive national prosperity: is to ensure that people have, you know, attain higher and higher in school, that everyone is university, uh, a university graduate. Uh, Etc. And if we come further down that 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 quadrant to more sort of uh, uh, you know well-being, but collective, one might look at uh, things uh, you know in African countries, uh, Ubuntu in South Africa. It's very much a kind of collective perspective about how do we, as a as a a, a, a nation, uh, mm-hmm. our, our understanding of ourselves is a national understanding, and how do we together as a nation, you know, and they use these interesting metaphors like march together or march together hand in hand or whatever, you know, hug each other and uh, have these wonderful warm huddles. How do we work together as a nation to achieve this, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, whether it is well-being or or wealth and uh, prosperity uh, and so on. And then, the, you know, the, the, the final piece, I mean, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to put China in that very first quadrant, which is about, uh, you know, meaning making as a collective and China, and, and this can sort of work both ways, but China, in my view, has become, you know, uh, ultimately very, very uh, uh, nationally driven, uh, you know, almost national. So under Xi Jinping, it's about, you know, we have to be understood as a nation, people need to understand who China uh, is and what we uh, and you know what what uh, what we can do, and that that is at the the top of the 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 agenda. So, being Chinese, being a member of that society, is the ultimate uh, flourishing. It's about national identity. It's about mm. secureness in 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 who we are. And comparatively, we don't necessarily have that in the US or in uh, the UK. You know, people don't go around uh, flushing their their British passports or, uh, you know, waving American flags, or perhaps they do, but, you know, <laughs> particularly at sports events. But, uh, you, you know, the, 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 but, but, but that is the point. So the, the kind of cross-cultural stuff is, uh, and cross-national stuff is absolutely fascinating. And I think it's... Uh, these, uh, 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 you know, um, perhaps, um, you know, unscientific constructs and uh, ways of trying to understand different societies and different nations does give us, I think, a very interesting perspective on what flourishing means across different borders. 
There's a lot of personal resonance for me in particular there, David. First of all, I love the idea of these four quadrants. I was kind of drawing it out as you were walking through it. Matt, it looked like you were too, as, as we were going through it. And, and uh, so, I mean, just for context, my wife is Vietnamese American. She's the daughter of two Vietnamese refugees from what you know, the Vietnamese referred to as the American War, of, of course. And um, it, it, like I said, personal resonance. Like I can see culturally with her and her family sharp differences from somebody who's, you know, born mm. and raised in the States and spent most of his time in the Western world. So mm. thank, thank you for bringing up the point and clearly articulating that. That's uh, hugely valuable. Mm. Yeah, I, I would just add very briefly that, you know, a, a colleague and I wrote a paper where we developed a new measure of inner peace. And, and we said that, you know, peace and harmony don't seem to be um, really strong components of conversations about flourishing and um, thriving and complete well-being. And so we, we thought it would be helpful to have a measure and to and some light on that. But really, if you look around the world, there's often this distinction. People say, well, you know, it's more of a focused in the East than, the, than in the West, mm. peace and harmony. But if you look around the world and you give people the opportunity to define happiness, even in mm. Western countries, people talk about harmony. And, you know, we want to be um, at peace with ourselves, you know, not constantly at war with ourselves. And we don't actually want to be at war with other people. So we want inner and outer harmony as important aspects of um of flourishing. And, um, you know, we can think about one of the themes that we've touched on in various ways in this conversation. I think David started off with, you know, flourishing doesn't always have to be about growth. It can be about depth. And I think that's where harmony and peace give us additional purchase on, on that idea. If we create societies that are growth, economic growth machines, I shouldn't if because we have created societies that are economic growth machines, we create a lot of conflict around the world and, um, and, and put a lot of strain on the natural environment. And so we're at a point now where we have no choice but to reimagine flourishing as, um, as deeply connected, inseparable from harmony, both inner, the inner experience of, of peace and harmony, but also harmonious relationships with other people across mm -hmm. cultures and with the, the natural environment. And I, I really think that that's going to be the next big focus within um, this research, which has moved away from very narrow understandings of wellness to a broader understanding of well-being and now flourishing, which would include the spiritual domains, as well as this notion of relationship and responsibility to other people and to the natural world. So I think the, um, the convergent thinking that I witness around the world when I'm part of these conversations is all pointing to that level of integration. Great. Thank you both so much for your fascinating contributions on this question. It's, it's been amazing to learn from you. Um, in everything you've said so far, but in particular in response to this question, this has been incredible. Um, yeah. I've got two questions I'm going to try and mold into one because they're both very practically focused. Um, and so in your in your answer to the next question, consider this, I'll, I'll phrase these as two connected questions and, and please uh, see if you can find a way to, to connect your answer into kind of a, a holistic response to both. So Matt, earlier on, you mentioned pathways to flourishing in, in your discussion of what flourishing consists in. 
pathways being areas of life that significantly enhance the areas of well-being or those domains of well-being that most contribute towards living a good life. And mm -hmm. we know that the flourishing program at, at Harvard have identified four of those uh, education, work, family, and religious community. And David, in your work too, you, you focus on pathways to flourishing worldwide in various global contexts in the, in the empirical studies you've done, the research you're currently doing. So what do you each think the pathways to flourishing are? And are there any others that research is yet to show our pathway that hasn't yet shown our pathways that it might do future? Mm -hmm. And connected with that is what Nick and I call the fucking question that we ask all of our uh, guests at the end of interviews, which is what's the one lesson on human flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with? Mm -hmm. And what might be a practical step for putting that lesson into action? So perhaps that could be connected up with yeah. the pathways to flourishing. So Matt, if you want to, Take them on first. Tell, pe tell yeah, people how to flourish. You. It's that simple, right? Just, you know. Yeah, well. <laughs> just phrased so, it like that. So. so, yeah, I think the most important question here is how do we spend our time? And yeah. as children, we spend our time in families and schools. And as adults, we spend our time in families and workplaces and, you know, in religious communities. And so that's why we focused on these pathways where people spend their time. And so if we look at the you know workplace is as uh, our colleagues in public health Eileen McNeely and others at the Shine program um, are constantly reminding us you know the workplace is a wonderful platform for flourishing but we don't see it that way so they're trying to raise you know consciousness and show that if you focus on flourishing you actually get the organization whatever it might be, be doing whatever its mission is is actually more effective at achieving its goals and if you neglect that you you run into all sorts of inefficiencies so if we look worldwide you know gallup has been polling workers for years and what percentage of workers are engaged in the sense of being highly involved in and enthusiastic about and committed to their work and their workplace and it varies around the world but for about a decade now it's been about 12 to 22% so that's um, that's not great, and we spend a lot of time at work. And so, what you know, what can we do to um, to help people connect in meaningful ways, both to their workplace and to their coworkers and themselves? And same thing in schools. Gallup has found in the United States um, what they call the school cliff, where engagement falls as children work their way through school. So you start out in elementary school with fairly high levels of engagement. Eight out of 10 students are engaged. By middle school, it's six out of 10. By high school, it's four out of 10. And who's, you know, who's at the lowest level? Teachers. You know, so it keeps going through college and then into the workplace. And so there's just an enormous opportunity for us ask, to get really curious about why that's the case. What's going on here? Have we removed play and joy from the kids' experience? And then teachers have no play or joy at all. Have we um, disconnected human beings from the creative arts, which is actually an important um, biological need <laughs> that we have to meet? And over time, we're doing less and less of that. And by the time you're a teacher, you, you don't have any time at all for that. So when we start to think about, you know, pathways and then like, what's the big question or what's the big opportunity here? How do we spend our time? And let's focus on flourishing in those contexts. If we're working eight to 10 hours a day, then we have no choice but to focus on the workplace. And if kids are spending all of this time in school, 
then why don't we get curious not only about their academic test scores and abilities, but about how they're relating to themselves and to other people and how they're seeing themselves as part of a broader story that's meaningful to them, you know, where they can say, the point of life is not just to get a good degree so I can get into a good college so I can make money and then die, but there's something else to life beyond that kind of cycle. And what we've been telling young people and even workers um, as they go through their careers is that that really is the purpose of life. Just get these credentials, make money, and then hopefully your kids can get into a good school and repeat the cycle all over again. There's more to life than that, and we can we can help people connect with that. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. And David, same question to you, the pathways to flourishing. What do you see them as being? And uh, you know, what's the kind of one lesson you'd like listeners to take away today as, as a kind of a, a way towards flourishing? Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, I mean, I'm you know inclined really to agree. I'd, I'd like just to um, uh, maybe take further, you know, Matt's um, uh, points about you know work, family, schools, uh, and I would see these um, rather than necessarily pathways, but uh, you know, as 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 settings. Uh, and I, th- I think Matt said something really right at the very beginning of this conversation, which, uh, uh, you know, is something I'm very keen on, which is, which is activity, but it's, it's human activity. So human activity, you know, of, you know, takes place in settings, wherever these settings are. But uh, where human activity takes place, it is uh, normally activity that is built around uh, tension and contradiction. Uh, so in the workplace, uh, you know, we all know that uh, blue-collared workers putting wheels on Ford cars or whatever, you know, and I think Matt was talking earlier about alienation and so on, all these wonderful sociological concepts that come flooding back. Uh, but, you know, so if, you, if, if you're in a workplace putting tyres onto uh, cars coming off a production line, that's not a great uh, sort of setting in which one flourishes. So one doesn't necessarily flourish simply because one is in a setting, but one is able to flourish if the contradictions around work in a workplace are both exposed and mediated. Mm. So I'll draw here on the Brazilian educator, Paulo Freire, mm. you know, and for Paulo Freire, when he, you know, in his books of the, the um, uh, what was it called again? I can't remember the, 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 the something of the oppressed. Pedagogy. Pedagogy of oppressed, you know, the, the idea around conscientization and, you know, where he gets mothers to come along and, uh, says, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to use the primer. The cat sat on the mat to teach you how to read. But uh, I have here a picture of Brazilian mothers with their hands in soap suds doing the washing up. What does this mean to you? And allow people to cathart, to talk about their meaningful domestic uh, experiences and basically use that as a way in which to teach them uh, literacy around meaningful activities. And, you know, there are hundreds of examples of how, uh, you know, labor organizations, trade unionists, blue-collared workers getting together in the workplace to understand their contradictions and to carry out activities that bring meaning to what it is they're doing. And sometimes that meaning-seeking behavior is a challenging behavior, strikes or 
you know, go slows, etc. But the workplace is the context, and it's those activities that ultimately uh, uh, is a way of collectively finding meaning in what people do. The same in schools. I worked a lot in Pakistan amongst communities whose kids were really picking the picking through the trash every day. Uh, to put uh, to sell things to put on, on on the table so that their families could eat one solid meal in the evening and sitting down with their fathers and uh, mothers you know uh, saying well you know can't 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 you send your kids to school as well you know how, how will we eat uh, and, and it's trying to find a way of being able to mediate these really important uh, contradictions to then make schools and make communities in which activity takes place, uh, you know, settings around which meaningful activity can take place. But the 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 idea of mediation and clearly the idea of 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 meaningfulness uh, around those activities that those activities have a a purpose. Uh, for me, it's these three things that uh, produce, as it were the pathways to human flourishing, settings in which people uh, uh, work or play together, as, as, as uh, Matt was saying, the idea of meaning, which could be contradiction and tension, mm. and the idea of mediation. And sometimes this is through education, sometimes this is through you know, uh, advocates, pe 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 people wanting to help drive uh, meaning makers, and it's putting together that triangle uh, that constitutes for me the pathway, the pathways towards uh, human flourishing. Well, I think you both uh, just brought up plenty of good reason for a follow-up episode on the settings and flourishing in these settings. I know John and I are particularly keen to, at some point, dig deep into flourishing in education um, and sort of what that means for systemic change. Uh, I don't think we're alone in that, by the way, by any means. Yep. Um, but for now, we want to be respectful of your time. Um, gentlemen, this was fascinating. Absolutely wonderful. Um, I learned Thank a lot. Uh, really, really beautiful synthesis, I think, through so many of your responses. We really appreciate the time, the nuance, the care, the thoughtfulness that uh, you brought to the dialogue today. Thank you both. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. And thanks for, for organizing it. And Matt, really lovely to talk together. And I, I have an enormous amount, uh, indeed, uh, even things I didn't know I knew uh, that came from my own. <laughs> 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 uh, that's great. So, uh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you, David. And I, I, I would love to see that quadrant uh, published somewhere <laughs> if, you, if you've got something or, or could, could whip it out. So that'd be great. Absolutely. Look Absolutely. forward to We need another um, episode on transformative education um, yes. for flourishing. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm on board. Cool. Absolutely. That's great. Great. All right. Thank all right, guys. You all. all the very Thank best. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show if you like what you heard please share it with friends family colleagues and be sure to leave us a five-star review uh, you can also find us on all social media platforms uh, we've got our own youtube channel and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com we'd also love to hear from you there's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today.
and keep putting in the work.